so excited to be back with you this weekend as we kick off this new series, Your Choice, Your Voice. Uh, it's a series that has to do with the power of words, how they impact our lives, the impact they have on our relationships. In fact, I believe you're going to see by the end of this series that this is probably going to be one of the most impactful relationship series we've ever had at Hope Community Church. And be honest with you, as I began to prepare this series months ago, it didn't start out that way, but that's the way that it ended up. And I'm basing this series on a verse that's found in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. It says this, the tongue has the power of life and death. That's quite a statement. The tongue has the power of life and death. In other words, this verse says that the way we communicate with each other, the way we speak with each other, either has the power to breathe life into our relationships or it has the power to breathe death and destruction into our relationships. But even though Solomon said this, and think about it, Solomon was like the original, for those of you from New York and New Jersey, Solomon was the original wise guy, okay? He was the wisest person who ever lived. And even though Solomon said this, I'm not sure we really believe that the words that come out of our mouth carry that much weight. So that's what we're gonna be talking about in this series. And uh, to be honest with you, it's gonna be very simple. I only have three points for you this weekend because this weekend we're kind of laying the foundation for everything that we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks. Uh, whenever we do a series here at Hope, it's kind of like an individual sermon. When I write a sermon, I write an introduction, there's a teaching time, and then there's application at the end. When we do a series, usually the first week of the series is the introduction, it lays the foundation. Then there's going to be a few weeks of teaching, and then there's going to be several weeks of application in this series. And I'm excited about it, but this weekend we're going to lay the foundation. I'm going to give you three things you need to know. We're going to talk about how our words connect us with God. We're going to talk about how our words connect us with each other, but I want to begin by showing you how the word connects God with us. How the word connects God with us. Now this is going to be a little bit of a theology lesson as we lay this foundation. And I know for some of you, your spirits just went, because mm, you don't like theology. You come to church to get inspired, to get motivated, to get jacked up, to be a better person. And the idea of learning something is almost abrasive to you. But you know what? If you don't have a strong foundation in your faith, everything is going to crumble. So let me begin by talking about the word and how God connects to us through the word. If you have your Bible this weekend, John chapter one, beginning in verse one, very familiar verses if you've read the gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then if you drop to verse 14, a very familiar part of this chapter, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, if you were reading this for the first time, you would naturally have the question, what is this word referring to? Well, this is actually, John the writer's is his favorite title for Jesus. And the way verse one is written, it suggests that the word, Jesus, actually had a beginning. In fact, it says, in the beginning. But what's interesting, if you could read this in the original Greek, the word the isn't there. The word the was later added by the editors to help it read more clearly, but there's no definite article the in the original text. In fact, the original Greek would sound more like this. In a beginning that never really had a beginning was the word. See, that's the thought. We're talking about eternity. In fact, verse one goes on to say, the word was with God. And this preposition with, when John wrote it, it suggests a familiarity. For example, when you hang out with someone over time, you develop a familiar relationship. 
If you've been married for a while, you know what it's like to begin to know what the other person is thinking. Or if you've been married 40 years like Laura and I have, you begin to finish each other's sentences. That's the idea. That's the word that John uses here. In other words, John says, Jesus, the son, and God, the father, have always been in this intimate relationship with one another. It had no beginning. It will have no ending. It is eternal. And that just blows our mind. And then John adds in verse 1, and the word was God. Now, I wish you had your Bibles because I would tell you to mark that verse because that right there, that is the most categorical statement in the Bible regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, the one who never had a beginning, the one who came in the flesh and dwelt among us was, in fact, God. He was fully divine. In theological circles, we refer to this as the incarnation. God took on flesh. God became flesh. But John wants us to understand that the word Jesus has existed with God for all eternity. Now, I mention that because I think a lot of us believe that Jesus began to exist when he was born in Bethlehem. But that's not true. He's always existed. And that's why John could say in verse 2, he was with God in a beginning that had no beginning. By the way, later on when Jesus was teaching in John chapter 8, verse 58, he made this statement. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, before Abraham was even a twinkle in his daddy's eye, Jesus said, I existed. So John tells us that the word Jesus existed with the Father before the world was even created. And that's very, very important because when it came to that point in time where creation was going to take place, the very next verse, John chapter one, verse three, tells us that the word, Jesus, was the one who created. Look what it says, through him, and he's referring back to the word, through him, all things were made. By the way, the tense of this verb made in the Greek, and I don't wanna bore you with all this stuff, but it's in the aorist tense, and whenever a verb is in the aorist tense, it's referring to an event, not referring to a process. So when John wrote this, he is referring to a creation event, which would make it a young earth, not a creation process. In other words, the song we just sang, when he spoke, a hundred billion galaxies appeared just like that. Now we'll save that for another time, right? But what I want you to see is maybe something you've never seen before. Jesus was the creator. Now I'm gonna be honest with you. I was an adult, and I grew up in church my whole life. I was an adult before I realized that. And my guess this weekend is I'm not alone. I think most people think that God the Father created, but it wasn't the Father. The Father did the planning, but you got to understand, Jesus, the Word, was the implementation of that plan. In fact, let me show you a couple of verses that bear that out. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to a church that was located in the city of Colossae. Eventually, it made its way into our Bible as the book of Colossians. And this is what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, for in him, and if you go back and read all of chapter 1, you'll see that the context is in reference to Jesus. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. But not only, think about this, not only did Jesus create the universe, think about this now, he's the one who keeps it running. In fact, if you go to the very next verse, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold 
together. Here's a thought for you to try to wrap your head around this weekend. When Jesus was lying in the manger, he was holding the universe in place. While Jesus was lying in the manger waiting for Mary to feed him and to change his diaper, he was making sure that those hundred billion galaxies were staying exactly where he placed them. But not only was Jesus eternal, not only was he the creator of all things, the word Jesus, and this is what I really want you to see this weekend as we kick off this series, he's the giver of spiritual life. Look at verse four of John chapter one. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A better way to translate that word overcome would be the darkness hasn't overpowered it or the darkness can't overwhelm the light of Jesus Christ. Now, why is this verse so important? Well, from a practical perspective, have you ever gotten up one day, turned on the news, and you watch about five minutes of the news, and it is so depressing, and you have this thought, I don't think the world's ever been this bad. I don't think our culture has ever been this dark. You know what this verse says? It says, no matter how bad our world gets, no matter how dark our culture may be, it is never gonna be able to overpower, overcome, overwhelm the light of Jesus Christ. But let's make it personal. No matter how dark your life may be, no matter how bad your past may be, it's not enough to overwhelm or overpower the light of Jesus Christ. Gary and I went to lunch one day and we met J.D. Greer, the pastor of Summit, and uh, we were getting together. By the way, J.D.'s a great guy. I tell people all the time, as churches, we're not in competition with each other. We're trying to make sure every man, woman, and child in the triangle has multiple opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're on the same team. We celebrate together. Uh, if you don't buy my book for any other reason, you should buy it because J.D. wrote the Ford. It's the best part of the book. But anyway, we were having lunch together, and there was a receptionist there that sat us, and she found out we were pastors, and before the long, you know, we went to church world and Christian world, and she basically said this, I'm too far gone. I'm too far gone. Well, you know, we're not going to have much of a conversation there in the restaurant, so as I was leaving, I gave her my phone number, and I said, listen, you ought to come to Hope one weekend, and then maybe between services, let me know you're going to be there, we'll have a conversation, I'd love to talk to you. And she texted me, and we began texting back and forth. And finally I asked her, I said, like, why, why are you so bad? She was about 40 years old, that you think that you're too far gone for God? Because we all know people like that, right? I'm just too far gone, right? She said, I had an abortion. And I'm like, wow, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. But that's not gonna overpower or overwhelm the light of Jesus Christ in your life. In fact, I told her, I said, yeah, that's, that's nothing. Abraham was an adulterer, Moses was a murderer. David said, I'll talk that, I'll be an adulterer and a murderer. Rahab came along, she was a prostitute. She's in the family tree of Jesus. Jesus' lineage is from a prostitute. I tell people all the time, she put the ho, ho, ho in Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. Paul came along and wrote most of the New Testament. And you know when he met Jesus, literally the light, right? It blinded him on the road to Damascus. He was in the process of persecuting Christians and putting them in prison. Nothing we can ever do can overwhelm and overpower the light of Jesus Christ. He came to this world, John chapter 1, to be the instrument which reconciles us and restores us back into a relationship with the Father. But this is what John adds in verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, in other words, to do, those who believed in his name, you accepted who he was, he gave the right to become children of God. Think of it this way. When God looked down at the 
mess that we had made of his creation, the mess that we had made of our lives because of sin, God took the initiative to reconnect with us. God took the initiative to restore our broken lives back to himself. I've said this before, when he looked at the mess we'd made, if we needed financial help, he would have sent us Warren Buffett. If we'd have needed a life coach, he would have sent us Dr. Phil or Oprah. If we'd have needed entertainment, he would have sent us Bruno Mars. But he looked at the mess we made and he's like, they can't even get out of their own way. They need saving. And so he decided to send us the gift of a savior. He decided to send us the word. And understand, if you're new to church, you're new to hope, you're new to the Bible, the Bible is really nothing more than an epic love story of God creating mankind in his image, in a relationship with him. They didn't have to do anything to earn their way into relationship, deserved to be, they were created in a relationship, but Adam and Eve destroyed that when they sinned. And the rest of the Bible is nothing more than God's pursuit to restore us back into a relationship with him. And the word, John chapter one, was the fulfillment of that plan. He sent the word, his son, Jesus. He came and he dwelt among us, knowing that he was gonna go to the cross to be our savior so that we could be reconnected back to God. He pursued us. Now you get to decide whether or not you wanna accept that gift of salvation. But you wanna talk about the difference between life and death? If you receive him and accept God's gift of salvation, eternal life. If not, eternal spiritual death, separated from God in a place called hell. So understand, not only does the word connect God to us, here's the second thing I want us to understand. Our words connect us to God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 10, verse eight. What does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth. Now look at this and in your heart. By the way, when Jesus was on the earth, and we're gonna see it throughout these series, he was constantly making the connection between the mouth, the tongue, and the heart. In fact, according to Jesus, the problem really isn't the mouth. It's not the tongue. It's not the words that come out of our mouth. The problem really is the heart. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Drop down to verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and look what these evil thoughts lead to. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what defile a person. So understand as we go through this series, the mouth, or sometimes we'll refer to the tongue when we look at James. Understand, it's just the messenger boy that carries the words from the heart. By the way, this, in today's culture, the same could be said of our fingers. I'm sure if Jesus were writing today in the computer in the phone age, he would talk about our fingers because what you type reveals what's in your heart. What you put in that email, what you post on social media, how you use your thumbs on Instagram, that just displays what's really in your heart. So it really isn't a mouth problem, it's not a finger problem, it's a heart problem. So let's go back to Romans chapter 10 verse eight. Paul says the word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. This is the message, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
well then you're going to be saved. In other words, if you receive the gospel, that God came in the flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life on this earth, died on the cross, shed his blood to pay for our sins, three days later rose from the dead to verify he was the son of God who could take away the sins of the world. If you profess that, you will be saved. Look what it says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith. It's with your heart you believe, but it's with your mouth you profess the gospel, that Jesus is who he said he is, and you are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what Paul is saying? If it's really in your heart, if it's really changed you, it's going to come out of your mouth. If you believe it, you're going to profess it. So understand, our words connect us to God. We believe we profess, and Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's point number three, and this is where we're going to be spending the series. Our words connect us with each other. Let me show you, let's go back to that verse that I said I was basing the series on. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. But look at the very next verse. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now, if you were just reading through Proverbs and you came across those two verses, you would thought maybe Solomon lost his mind for a second because it seems like two totally different topics. And I now believe there's a reason that he put these two together. See, the way that God connects with us is through the word Jesus Christ. The way we connect with God is through our words. We believe it and we profess it. We call on the name of the Lord. But the way we connect with each other is through our words. Now, do you know what that tells me? It tells me if you want great relationships, you make them with your words. Some of you listening right now at all of our campuses, you're involved in some really, really bad relationships. And the reason that your relationships are so broken, so bad, is because of your words. Some of you are having marriage difficulties right now, and it's based on your words, how you communicate with each other. There are relationships between parents and children and children and parents that are broken down because of your words. In other words, you're involved in relationships where instead of speaking life, you're speaking death. And as a result, you look back over the wake of your life and you know what you see? You see that your life is littered with destroyed relationships. What Solomon wants us to understand is that every word that comes out of our mouth is either releasing life or it's releasing death. And I believe that Solomon put these two together, verse 21 and verse 22, because I'm telling you, this is especially true in our marriages. A few weeks ago, I was just in my quiet time, I was reading through Ephesians, and I came to Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, and something hit me, maybe because I was preparing for this series, I'd never noticed before, but look what it says. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's typically where we stop when we're teaching on this topic. But look at what it says. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now look. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water. Look at this. Through the word. So Paul tells us that Jesus is in the process of cleansing, washing, purifying his bride. Now who's his bride? 
is referring to everyone who has ever been, is presently, and who will ever follow Jesus Christ. Everyone who's responded and received the gospel. We are the bride of Christ. And Paul tells us that he cleanses us, he washes us, he purifies us through his word. In other words, as we get absorbing the truth of God's word, our life begins to be transformed, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I was reading that one morning. And this was a thought I had when it comes to mine and Laura's relationship. Am I washing? Am I cleansing? Am I purifying my bride through my words? Or am I damaging? Am I destroying? Am I defiling our relationship with my words? For example, let's say that Laura and I have a disagreement. How many of you here have been married for more than five minutes? Raise your hand. All right, then you've all had a disagreement. Okay. <clears throat> you're going to have them. You're going to have them. On your honeymoon, before you even check in the first night, you're going to have a disagreement, right? You're not going to like the room. You gotta, I mean, it's just going to happen. You're going to have to. So let's just say hypothetically, okay? Let's say this has never happened. But let's say hypothetically, this time in our disagreement, it's Laura's fault. Okay? This is the one time Laura messed up. Okay? Now, when I confront Laura about this big mistake, okay, do I give her a sponge bath? There's a mental picture for you. <laughs> in other words, and she's here and she just, whoo, but uh, in other words, do I speak the truth in love? Or do I have the moral high ground and so I, 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 I tap into my righteous indignation? because she's wrong, and I sandblast her. Let her have a piece of my mind. Here's my question for you. How are your words impacting your marriage? Are they breathing life? Are they breathing death? Now, there's gonna be a lot of application, but I wanted this weekend to give you a little bit of application. And this is kind of like some baby steps. We'll call this low-hanging fruit. And I want to begin with the men by giving you some practical suggestions. I'm gonna make this series as, as practical as we can. I want to give you some practical suggestions about how you can communicate with your wife, maybe beginning this week, that's gonna help you begin to breathe life back into your marriage instead of death. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, some of your marriages are on life support. So we're going to call these relationship resuscitations, okay? This is just low-hanging fruit. These are just like, man, I'm going to give you three things. I just want you to begin to think about I'm telling you, if you begin to think about it, it's going to change how you speak. Here's, here's, here's some things. Here's the first one. Men, don't interrupt your wife while she's talking. Just make that a habit. Like, whenever you, like, stop, bite your tongue. But don't interrupt your wife while she's talking. Because, see, when you do, this is what you're communicating. What you're saying is that nearly as important as what I'm about to say. And none of us as men, we would never admit that that's what we're trying to do. But when you interrupt your wife, that's exactly what you're doing. And I'm just going to be honest with you, and Laura knows this, I do this all the time because I love to talk. It may be the only gift I have. I'm not kidding. And if I'm not careful, and we've had this conversation this week, I am a terrible interrupter. And honestly, I'm really not thinking that what I have to say is more important than what Laura has to say. But every time I do that, I'm telling you, that's what I'm communicating. It is a bad habit. And when you do that, you're not breathing life into a relationship. You're breathing death into a relationship with how you communicate. Here's another one. Men, develop the habit of listening. 
I mean, have you noticed that often when our wife comes to us and they share a problem, we being men, we immediately go into problem-solving mode because that's what we do, right? In fact, often we check out in the middle of her sharing with us because we've already found the solution. We've already got three points. It's brilliant. If she will just apply them and be held accountable, she's going to be able to handle this situation, right? And it's because when our wives open up to us, we just assume naturally that they want our input. We assume it's just an invitation for us to sweep in like a knight on a white stallion and solve their dilemma. I'm telling you, that's not what our wives want. And so if you're one of those guys that's always trying to solve your wife's problem when she talks about them, this is what I can promise you. I can promise that she's going to stop sharing with you. She's going to shut down in the relationship because I'm telling you, that's not why she shares. This is what she wants. She wants you to appreciate her struggle. She wants you to appreciate the situation she's dealing in. She wants you to understand her dilemma. She wants you to assure her that you have enough confidence in her, that she's smart enough and wise enough, she can handle it. So understand, when we listen to our wives, we're communicating. First of all, you're worth listening to and you're valuable. But more importantly, I have confidence in you and your decision-making process. Now here's the third one. And this is, this will kill a marriage. Don't speak critical of your wife in her absence. Men, do you ever do that? You don't plan it that way. But you're on the golf course. You've had a few beers. The guys start talking. And it gets kind of funny, so you just kind of get on the roll and you start complaining about your wife. Let me tell you why it's stupid. He's going to go home and tell his wife what you said about your wife. And his wife is going to tell your wife what you said about your wife. And it always breathes death, not life, into a relationship. Here's another one. Men, do not ever, 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 under any circumstances, open up to another female about your wife or your marriage. It is certain death. I believe that more affairs begin with this mistake than anything else. You meet someone at the gym, you meet someone at work, and you get to know each other, and you think you're friends, and so you begin to share from some of the personal areas of your life, how your wife doesn't understand, or she treats you, or she does this, and what does she say? Wow, she doesn't understand you, does she? She doesn't realize how lucky she is, does she? And before you know it, there's a, there's, there's a connection because of those intimate details. And I'm telling you, you're breathing death, not life, into that relationship. Here's another one. Be careful what you say to your children in your wife's absence. And understand it's because we set the pace for our children by how we talk about their mom. And when we are critical of our wife in our wife's absence, you know what it does? It gives our children permission to be critical in her presence, they kind of have the attitude, hey, dad did it, it must be okay. And it brings tension and it brings death. So men, think about it this way. This week is your homework. If mom cooks the worst meal in the history of the world, if mom dresses the kids like clowns to go to school, when the kids come and complain to you about mom, your correct, correct response is simply this. You will respect and honor your mom.
And I can promise you how your kids are going to respond. But look at what she did. But your response is, yeah. But you remember who she is. She's my wife, and she's your mom. You see the difference? Now, let me just say something, because we're going to have a lot of relationship advice in this series. When I, when I give men advice like this, see, I know what you wives are thinking. This is what, you, in fact, I can read your mind. This is what you're thinking right now. If he loves me, as soon as we get in the car after church, he's going to do what Mike told him to do, right? <laughs> but you're going to drive all the way home. And he's not going to do what I told him to do. <laughs> and so you're starting to fume a little bit. And about the time the garage door starts going up, you're going to say, I guess you don't even listen to Mike, do you? Right? You're just going to lay into him, okay? Now, that's the way ladies think. Let me tell you how the men are thinking, okay? This is what men are thinking right now. Well, I can't do what Mike asked me to do right when I get out of church. Or she's going to think I'm only doing it because Mike told me to do it. See, that's, that's the way that men are thinking, okay? So we got this standoff. So give us a little slack. Give us some time. Let us ease into it, you know? If we don't say something by Tuesday or Wednesday, let us have it, okay? Okay. Now, I've talked to the men. So now, ladies, let me talk to you. I'm going to tell you something uh, about your husband that he's too embarrassed to tell you, but it will immediately begin to change the dynamics of your relationship if you will communicate this way. This is, this is what I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna go, okay, right. <laughs> We need you to admire us. And I know that sounds shallow for you ladies. And I know you're liberated. I, I, I'm all about liberated women. I'm all about equal rights and equal pay. And you know, Laura's a liberated woman. She's a strong woman. Some of you are super duper liberated though. See? And so that's a problem for you, right? Like, really? Really? He can admire himself. I'm not going to admire him. That's not my job to admire. I know what you're thinking. I'll give you an example of a super duper liberated woman. Laura and I had to go to the mall Thursday quickly to pick up something. We picked up something. Then she needed to go somewhere else in the mall. She said, hey, get your truck and meet me at the other end of the mall. So I, while she's going to the other store to get, take care of it, I get my truck. I park. As I'm going back in the mall, there's a lady behind me. I open the door because I am a southern gentleman, and that's how my dad raised me, right? I open the door. This is no lie. She stopped and looked at me, and she said, I don't need a man to open the door for me. I can open my own door. Now, I will tell you at that moment, I was not thinking, bless her heart. <laughs> I was not thinking that. In fact, this is how I am. You know what I did? I said, you're right. I not only let go of the door, I pulled it shut. <laughs> and if I had a chain, I would have chained it. I would, I would have chained it. I mean, only stupid, okay? I mean, good gracious. And I say that because if you fall in the category of super duper liberated woman, when I say, men, as men, we want you to admire, see, you threw up in your mouth a little bit because this whole idea just makes, makes you sick. But let me just say something before you shut me off, okay? If your relationship with all the men in your life is a 10 out of 10, just ignore me. But maybe there's something you can learn here, okay? We need you to admire. So here's the definition of admire. To regard with wonder, pleasure, or approval. We never outgrow that. When I first met Laura, I was playing basketball in college. She was a cheerleader. In fact, the first time I laid eyes on her was at a pep rally. Dressed out in that green and gold, 
I saw her, it was as if the heavens opened, a light shone down, just like in Luke 2, like the angels, they glowed. I mean, she just, she just glowed, right? And I'm not gonna lie to you, I stalked her. She will tell you, I stalked her until she dated me. It's okay. You need some water? But I'll never forget the first basketball game I was playing in and she was cheering. Man, you want to talk about coming out on the middle of the floor for the starting lineup? And the hot chick that's in the cheerleading uniforms over there? Yeah. But not two minutes into the game, I stole a pass, went down and made a basket. I'm not lying. I will remember this till I die. I was coming back up the court. Back then I had hair. It was like flopping in slow motion. And I looked over at her and I'm like, right, you know what I'm saying? Because like, I felt like, listen, we never outgrow that. There is something in every man. I'm telling you, there's something in every man that wants your admiration. We want to know that you regard us as with pleasure and wonder and approval. And ladies, you, you've got to get into the habit of pushing that button off. And, and it's because, see, we like to be environments where we're admired. In fact, we get pulled into those kinds of environments. And you can say whatever you want, but it's the way that God wired us. And ladies, this is important because there are women out there who will find something to admire about your husband. And right now, some of you ladies are going, uh, yeah, you haven't met my husband. I think I'm safe. You could not be more wrong. You could not. There are women out there who will find something to admire about your, and I'm telling you, when it happens, it pushes a button inside of us. He may be at work, and it may be a, a compliment as simple as, wow, you explained that so clearly, and the button gets pushed. So we need you to push the admiration button. We need you to push it. So let me give you some things that you get to work on this week, communication, okay? Tell him he looks good. Now, we're not going to go, Really? You think so? No, we're not going to do that. This, this, you know what we're going to do? We're going to act like it's not a big deal. Trust me, it's a big deal. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Laura does this almost every day. She'll say, you look good. You look hot. I know she's lying, but it's still, I'm telling <laughs> I got mirrors, right? It's still a big deal. So there's one. Here's another one. Tell him how smart he is. You say, yeah, but my husband's not smart. Yes, he is. He may not be as smart as you. Men, we understand that. We all marry up. He may not be as smart as you wish he was, but he's smart. So look, look for ways of letting him know that. Here's another one. Compliment him on his strength. We know we're not strong. We know that really we are emotional wimps. But when you say things like, wow, honey, you unscrewed that light bulb all by yourself. I'm telling you, it just pushes our button. And we're not going to say, oh, thank you, honey. You know, that really built my self-esteem. We're not going to do that. But I'm telling you, it, it, we all have that button. My point is this, and literally, this is for all of us. This goes for men and women. If your spouse only does one thing well, talk about that as much as you possibly can. I mean, ladies, it's the only thing your husband does well is get up in the morning. You tell him, man, you are the best getter-upper I've ever seen in my life. And with your friends, you say, you ought to see this guy get up. It's incredible how this, but if that's all, I mean, if the only thing your wife does well is shop, you tell her, man, I am so proud of you. You are the best shopper I've ever seen in my life. You tell your, you ought to see what she can do with a Groupon. I mean, you, I mean, you, you just can see, I've told you before, and I mean this, 
The reason that God has been able to use me at least at some level in building his kingdom is because Laura spoke well of me before I deserved it. See, she made me with her words. It's interesting. Proverbs 31, it talks about the virtues of a great wife. This is what Proverbs 31 verse 23 says. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Remember, Solomon's singing the attributes of this wife. She attributes his greatness. The way he's respected in the community, he attributes it to his wife, not him. It's the original, you know, behind every successful man is a wife who's just as surprised, you know, as he is, right? <laughs> right? But if you want a great husband, make him with your words. We're going to learn in this series, if you want a great wife, make her with your words. You want great children? Forget participation trophies. Make them with your words. And I know what some of you are thinking, man, I wish I'd have heard this years ago because my life's been a disaster because of my mouth. And I don't want you to walk out of here defeated this weekend. So let me give you seven words that can heal every relationship. These are seven words, if they come from the heart, they can breathe life even into a dead relationship. This is what they are. I was wrong, will you forgive me? I was wrong, will you forgive me? The way we reconnect with God is, I was wrong, will you forgive me? The way we connect with each other in our earthly relationships is, I was wrong, will you forgive me? It won't fix everything, but you know what? I think it'll solve about 90% of our relationship issues with our spouses, with our children, children with their parents, coworkers, and neighbors. I was wrong, will you forgive me? By the way, let me give you the six words that fall short of a healing relationship. I need to ask your forgiveness. You know what I think when people say that to me? Go ahead, go ahead. But most of the time, they never get around to it. They just tell me that they need to ask my forgiveness and then they launch into some lame explanation to defend what they said or why they acted the way they acted. I was wrong, will you forgive me? Let me tell you something. And you're gonna learn this over the next few weeks. The same vehicle you got into to drive away from a relationship in your life is the same vehicle you need to get into to drive back. Do you know what that vehicle is? It's your mouth. So you said something that blew up the bridge between you and that person. If you want to build the bridge back, it's going to begin with your mouth. And it's never too late. It's never too late as long as you're breathing. It's your choice. It's your voice. Let's bow together. For some of you, as we get into this series, you've never been reconciled back to God. You know, you can make that decision this weekend by just saying, God, I was wrong. I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me? I believe that your son died on the cross for me. I believe he rose three days later to verify that he was the son of God who could take away my sins. So I transfer my trust from my church attendance, my good behavior, my good deeds to your son, Jesus Christ. 
Will you accept me? I'm telling you, he will. He will. And if you talk to God just in the way I just shared with you, I would encourage you when this service is over this weekend, whatever campus you're at, go out to the next step counter. Talk to the person that brought you, a relative, a friend. Find me and talk to me. But profess with your mouth what you believe in your heart. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great way to start off this series by closing that gap and reconnecting with God. Father, thank you for your goodness. And we just wait to see what you're going to do, not in our mouths, not with our tongues, but in our hearts, because our hearts need to change. And when our hearts are really changed, our words will change. Teach us the practical ways to do that throughout this series. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of the great things God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download our app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 